Welcome to the Property Development Book Club podcast. Please be advised that panel members are expressing their own views and opinions, which should not be construed as advice. The audience must carry out their own research and consult an appointed professional for advice. Today we're talking about property development finance. I'm your host, I'm Adewale Ademalake, and I'm joined by some amazing group of professionals. Um, Development finance to many people means many different things, but this conversation is going to try to demystify what development finance is and how the likes of property developers, whether small or large, can can tap into using leverage to maximise their returns on working on development schemes. So I would like to then introduce you or allow the the guests to introduce themselves. So I'll start with you, Kazim, please. Sure. Hi, I'm Kazim Afalabi. I work for BBS Capital as a director in the financing group. We essentially arrange financing for developers um, and property professionals, prop codes or investors alike. Perfect. Thank you. Over to you. I am Ajay. Uh, I'm a quantity surveyor, chartered quantity surveyor, um, regional director at Chorus Group. Um, I've carried out the role of uh, monitoring surveyor uh, on, on, on behalf of um, a number of funds, so I'm here in that capacity. Perfect. Over to you. Thanks. Um, hi, I'm Ray Wong. Uh, I'm a Relationship Director at Paragon Development Finance, um, and we fund developments from anywhere from £400,000 all the way up to £35 million. Perfect. So I think that we the reason why this conversation is important, because you're joined by the people that, the banks, the people that can arrange the financing and the people that are going to monitor the finance, but each person's role will be exploring it shortly. So the first question I have for today is for Ray, and it's just for you to just briefly explain what is development finance? Yeah, so development finance is essentially a loan facility uh, where we are assisting with uh, acquisition and development of um, a property scheme. It could also be a refurbishment as well. Um, there's quite a few lenders in the space. I mean, at Paragon, we mainly residential-led, uh, but we offer also different sectors as well. So it could be purpose-built, student accommodation, supported living, retirement villages, built to rent as well. So it's quite a vast um, asset class that we work with. Um, and again, it's not just banks that offer this facility. It's um, that there's a lot more competition in the space now. Uh, peer-to-peer lenders, debt funds, institutional capital as well. So uh, it really is quite encompassing and quite um, competitive market at the moment. And you've got high net worth individuals that also do... And private, yeah. And private yeah. money. Well. <laughs> private money as well. Um, and there's a lot of controversy around that, but we're not going to explore it at this point, but we will at some point in this discussion. So the next question I have, and it's for Kazim, and it was, um, the question is, what is a capital stack and what are the key ingredients that go into it? Sure. So a capital stack, think of it as a pie. You're looking to go from the overall stack of or the pie in terms of how the overall project is financed so you will have a senior stack could have a mezzanine stack and you can have the actual equity and you can structure this in many different ways so a senior stack is essentially from zero to 50 or 60 percent depending on how you and who the um, sponsor is um, the mezzanine stack is essentially the middle stack which has is a little bit more risky so we'll appreciate again more return in terms of um, the overall pie and then the final chunk is the equity which is the developer or the investor who's helping the development go and so 
the way that a, a capital stack or a way that a pie could be cut, as you as you know, it can be cut in many different pieces. Um, Ray's role and tip it typically will come from the senior stack. In some cases, may even go up to what we call stretch senior, which is just essentially a percentage of the leverage curve of the overall one hundred percent of the pie. Yeah. So just to um, clarify on that, um, just for the listeners, in terms of the these mentioned percentages of is a percentage of the total development costs. Correct. Correct. Yes, and. We talk about the whole point around senior, mezzanine, and other forms of equity. We're now gonna, I wanted to ask about this whole point around first and second charge, because each form of equity requires a different form of priority in terms of repayment. Are you able to just briefly explain what first charge is, second charge is, and what a deal of priority is? Sure, so from just, first of all, from the first charge, it's essentially recourse and whatever, if you think about it in, in simple terms, if something goes wrong, what happens? And so the first charge of property essentially is just saying that whatever happens, you have ownership or you have control of the site in the first instance and you are repaid first if anything goes wrong. Yeah. So for example, if you have first charge, so a senior lender typically would have first charge on a property. And so if in the event the development went away, the senior lender, in terms of the total development cost or the total value that they have um, lent, will be able to get repaid first if in the first instance, whether you have to go and sell the property or however you get to a liquidity event. Mm -hmm. And then the second charge essentially just in next in line, who gets paid after the first charge has been, has been dispatched. And so in some cases that could be equity, that could be another peer-to-peer -peer lender, yeah. that could be a mezzanine lender. Um, and essentially, again, that's why from a returns perspective, the second charge will always cost more than the first charge because it's more risk. So you're paying, you're again, um, you're getting uh, compensated for that risk that you're taking. Yeah, and I'm, I'm very glad that you mentioned around the first charge and second charge and how that relates because the second charge, there is no guarantee that they're going to get their money back. Correct. Isn't it? Because they've got a first charge and that person may take all their money and there's nothing left. So I'm glad that you explained that. And then um, perhaps you can just briefly explain from your perspective what a deed of priority is. Yeah, sure. So a deed of priority is essentially a, a piece of a legal document which stipulates who's going to get paid first and where they rank. Obviously, if, if you're ranked first, you're going to get repaid first, second and equity last generally. But... Um, it's a bit more than that as well, where it sort of explains, you know, logistically what happens, you know, if someone did, for example, uh, default on a loan, you know, the second charge lender, for example, the, they could step in if they wanted to as well. And it can be a very complicated document if you let lawyers have their way. Mm -hmm. um, no doubt these things can go up to like 40, 50 pages, and I've seen into credited deeds, which are, you know, almost 100 pages long. So wow. it can get, I mean, it depends how many parties you have in it, but it literally goes to the nth degree and tells you logistically if this happens, what happens here, and how to calculate profits and whatever else as well. So, um, it, but basically it's the guidelines of how the loan is structured and um, what happens in certain events. Yeah, so I think it's just important to note that um, development finance is very complex and there's a, lead, there's a lot of point around investment and understanding finances as well as the legal elements. So these deed of priorities, again, you just have to be very mindful what you're entering into when you're doing development finance. But before we move on to the next question, I wanted to understand this whole point around personal guarantees. Because myself and Ray had a very extensive conversation about 
the importance of it and the whole element of liquidity of having assets in the event of the worst case scenario. So Kazim, do you mind just explaining the basics of personal guarantee and how much percentage would do you need of a loan for your developer to be able to guarantee? Sure. So th this this is uh, this a personal guarantee essentially just means that again in the event something goes wrong, how much and what percentage of you personally is on the hook. So if in the event, for example, and to answer your question, it could range from anywhere from ten to thirty percent of the loan amount that you need to and or the total project amount that you need to secure as collateral, and so. If in, the, if in the example you have a 10 million development, you go to the bank, you get a loan, and they require you as a senior lender, as Ray may, may, may require, they require you to provide a personal guarantee. It essentially means that if in the event the development goes wrong, you will have to guarantee whether it's your stocks, your house, whether, whatever investments that you have, a percentage so that that amount is on the line when it comes to repaying the debt. Yeah, and it's, it's important to note that because um, a lot of people think that development is, is a situation where this guy's getting rich, not knowing that they are putting their family's well-being at risk financially. But on the, there's another bit that me and Ray, when we spoke about it, around putting your personal home up for personal guarantee. And you had an opinion on that and how certain banks approach people putting their personal home as a personal guarantee. Do you mind sharing a bit about what we discussed? That's no, right. not at all. Um, so I think there's a bit of a reputational risk here as well for banks, right? So yes, you've got all your personal assets on, um, on risk here because you know, you've given a personal guarantee to in order to take out this particular loan. But banks don't want to be seen as taking houses of people and kicking people out of, you know, families out of homes. So a lot of the time, the equity within your home is actually discounted mm -hmm. um, in terms of, um, and obviously your guarantee, your personal net means would need to be sufficient to cover the guarantee as well. There's no point in having a million pound guarantee, but actually you're only worth 500 grand. You know, there's no point in having a million pound guarantee if that was the case. But um, so that's one consideration as well. But again, different lenders have different criteria as well. But typically, banks are regulated entities, and they typically would consider treating customers more fairly than more sort of peer-to-peer -peer lenders or. or debt funds for example yeah and, that, and that's very helpful to know um, and it's just in case you've got a lot of people that own a lot of properties or they think their home's got half a million pounds thinking they can get into development but as you've mentioned a responsible lender would not be comfortable calling in that your personal home yeah. and obviously the negative press that comes with that but yeah. I know it's that quite rare as well where people actually get to that stage the guarantee is more to bring people around the table with skin in the game yeah. you know if things do go south and don't go according to plan you want it's just there as a backup so you can call them around the table and look let's have a discussion how we can solve the problem maybe inject a bit more equity in how you know you need to raise a bit more capital from wherever else so it's just um, keeping people still interested if things don't quite work out um, yeah. and we can have a resolution because fundamentally we're we're bankers and lenders, we're not builders. No, <laughs> thanks for that. And, and, and Kazim, I think from your perspective, obviously we're talking about it from a regulated bank's point of view. Yeah. yeah. We're now going to talk about it from a capital point of view. In your view, have you ever seen that type of um, a person put their home as a personal guarantee and anyone call in that loan in the event of things going wrong? So not quite. So just a bit of context. I, what I do on a day-to-day on -day basis generally dealing with funds and dealing with ultra high net worth individuals or property companies 
And so the minimum amount that I'm typically dealing with is 10, 15, 20 million mm -hmm. of loan. Mm -hmm. Which essentially means that unless you're a you know, mega billionaire. <laughs> um, but that being said, um, one of our clients, uh, a loan that we, that we helped arrange a couple of months ago, um, a PG was called. It was 20% of the gross development value. Um, and I mean, this is an ultra high net worth individual. So um, the development is still going on. The likelihood that that gets called on is probably low because he's structured in a way that has different prop codes mm -hmm. across different developments. And so, if in an event, that, if in the event that something did go wrong, you'd be able to pull equity from various different sources. Yeah, and it wouldn't particularly go to the person's house because um, these people typically have more assets, or they are developers and mm -hmm. they have. Um, more assets and more developments and more property companies that they can draw equity from. Yeah, and that, that is helpful. And I think what, what, what um, Kazim, as well as Ray have mentioned, is around structured finance. I think it's just important that um, there are key principles of structured finance. And I think a lot of people that do leverage buyouts understand similar principles. And it's just important that um, there is a strong relationship between investment banking, I would say, and property lending or property investing in that realm that we're discussing. So the next question is around due diligence. And I wanted to understand what type of due diligence, just very briefly, what type of due diligence do you typically carry out on an individual that wants to lend from your bank? Um, I think in the initial stages, it's more about what we do in house is um, more about the developer, I suppose, more about the track record, the history, and what experiences they have. Um, and then once it gets credit approved, uh, then we'll move into sort of getting paid professionals involved, so valuers, uh, monitoring surveyors, um, and legals as well, just to sort of um, ensure that we can try and mitigate all risks. Okay, thank you. And from your perspective, because I know um, Ray worked for a bank, you work for an intermediary of sorts. What uh, would you say your due diligence is more stringent, or would you say you go through a tougher vetting process so you could present the best to your um, banks or high net ultra net worth? Um, investors? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's more stringent. I mean, every client that comes in, um, you have to do your KYC. Yeah. Because as a... And KYC means? Know your customer. Cool. Um, and that's just a process or checklist to establish source of funds. They are who they say they are, yeah. etc. Yeah. And it's not sanctioned. They're not getting their money, for example, from Russia at the moment, which is going on, mm -hmm. which is not, a, unfortunately, a helpful capital to have. Um, currently, or any of the other sanctioned countries on the planet, mm -hmm. um, and so from from our perspective, I mean, we we will do our checks as well to make sure that the developer or the high net worth individual, or the company, is an entity of substance mm -hmm. to be able to borrow. And typically, with developments, it always comes into the check that you're writing, right? So if you're doing a ten million pound development, twenty million pound development, and even if you're going 80% of the capital stack in terms of borrowing, you still need to provide the 20%, which yeah. means that for you to be able to have 20% of your 10 or 20 million, you'd still need to have uh, capital, i.e. you have to be an entity of substance. So typically, I mean, I guess fortune or unfortunate, depending on how you look at it, um, to be able to beat in that game, there's a level of KYC that has already been done. Mm -hmm. um, and then, most of the cases, it kind of flies through the bank's processes where they, once we've placed a developer 
into a, a bank like like Ray's, then they would once they've signed the term sheet, they will start the process of of KYC checks and make sure that um, yeah they are who they say they are and they can perform. Yeah, no, thank you very much for that. And then when I, go ahead, I am going to say so. That's checks obviously on the customer. Yes, um, Ray, Ray talked about. Uh, briefly on obviously appointing a monitoring surveyor after it's gone through credit mm -hmm. and valuation, yeah. uh, which is more so just more due diligence on the actual project itself. So mm -hmm. just ensuring that um, the developer, the customer, their assumptions that they've based uh, their whole proposal on um, makes sense. So first of all, you look at the valuation. You know, at the end of this um, scheme, it's going to be worth X, and you know, it's getting an independent valuer to to look at that and just verify for, for the fund, uh, for the intermediary. And then there's also the, the monitoring surveillance, so that's more looking more so at the uh, the form of contract, looking more so at the, the scheme itself, making sure that the numbers stack up, um, and that's that's where, 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 where I'll be involved. So that's more so uh, on the actual project, so the scrutiny, one on the customer, then mm -hmm. the next is the, is the scrutiny on the actual project. And that, and that just kindly leads me to the next question around, um, I'll probably ask it to yourself first, Ayo, and then I will ask if um, um, Ray can answer it as well after. So the question is, what is the importance of a monitoring surveyor, yeah? And why do developers um, get their borrowed money in arrears? If you can answer that. So maybe the arrears part, you probably can explain that, if that's all right. But sure. tell us the importance of a monitoring surveyor and why you feel a monitoring surveyor um, is very critical to, 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 to effectively safeguarding the investment made by banks, capital, etc. It's interesting because I remember when I first started uh, in monitoring surveying, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the specific, the specific um, kind of role, and it was very much so where you know banks were a bit more stringent, and I think there was a, a, a few more checks, um, and and I say that because I remember appearing on site um, or, or asking developers for information and they'd been working with the banks for you know for about 10 years for example and never really needed a monitoring surveyor so um, um, it, it was new to them um, but the, the reason we were there is really just to like I say it's, it's due diligence on the actual project so it's ensuring um, no <laughs> what, what we find is um, developers tend to be um, over optimistic um, on the valuations <laughs> in terms of what they think they're going to achieve uh, and then also over optimistic on the costs right so the costs are normally a lot lower or tend to be as low as possible as they as they think they can get but then they always over over um, estimate on, on the valuation so we're there just as a check just making sure that one is, is, is the is the is the contractor team um, capable have they done this before is it is the, is the contractor the design sorry, the design team so the professionals that are, that are working have they got a track record have they done this uh, kind of thing before and also just highlighting any risks any key risks um, you know have they got planning are there key planning um, considerations that need to be taken into place uh, and then crucially on cost as well just um, scrutinizing the contract sum that's been agreed uh, and any caveats uh, that, that may be there. So my job really is there to advise the bank um, and, and put my PI on the line <laughs> um, yeah. to, to satisfy to satisfy that. Because I think that in addition to the, the role of a monitoring surveyor, you're going to go for a build program. So if I wanted to borrow 100 million, mm -hmm. yeah, sure. um, it's yeah. not going to be given to me at once. Yeah. It's going to be given to me in tranches. Now, um, before I give that explanation, I would like you to answer, um, Ray, around the whole point around why do you pay developers in the race? 
so it's all about risk, I suppose, fundamentally. And, um, I think banks have been burnt before when they haven't had monitoring surveyors in place. You know, I've been told the story. So monitoring surveyor will be there on a monthly basis to make sure you know, they're essentially their ears on the ground. Um, eyes and ears on the ground where they, they you know they see the progress come up but when the bankers would typically go out maybe every other month uh, maybe once every quarter something like that to make sure it's in line with expectations and it's going according to plan uh, but fundamentally it's you know I've heard horror stories when I was working at high street banks where surveyors have been cahoots with the developer and actually they've said they're built to a certain stage but actually when the banker goes out there it's just a hole in the ground there's mm. nothing there so you know stuff like this does happen and it's always important for the bankers to go out and obviously visit the site there mm-hmm. and make sure uh, things are secure and everything else, um, especially given today where material prices are at the moment, it's, it's very essential. And then answering your latter part of your question about arrears, um, it's just minimising our risk, I suppose, because we pay in arrears because you like to think your developer can float one month's worth of build. You know, it's additional buffer for ourselves as well, you know, if things go wrong. But at the same time, it's minimising risk in case the developer does a run, you know, they ordered a big timber frame deposit, we paid it all out in advance. Um, if something goes wrong, you know, we, we can at least they've got some more cash in it than, than uh, and it's not with the banks, I suppose, than a run with the bank's money. Yeah, that's always the risk, um, and making sure and trying to minimize our risk wherever we can. Yeah, it, it does tend to also follow the, just the, the, the payment sequence in construction, right? So, normally, developers are, uh, are paid a month after the work is done, so you know, if it's interim payments. It'd be 28 days after the work is done, someone would come on site, value the works, uh, and produce a certificate. Um, so it, it effectively also follows um, um, and the sequence of construction, and that's where a monitoring surveyor would again uh, come out uh, on the bank's behalf and, and check it, um, like we say, uh, a month at a time. I guess the key thing we're all, always looking at, and when you say looking at rears, is more so the cost to complete, just always ensuring that there's enough left. Um, in the development facility uh, to complete the job, you know that, that that's a crucial. Um, yeah, and, and and I think it's it's just important to know because a lot of people think that um you can imagine if you've got a hundred million pound development, your first bill is going to be a million after month one. Yeah. Some people feel oh because I've got the development finance, I don't need to have a million pound liquid in my pocket. Mm. There's two ways that some people structure it. They may go and speak to a builder and say, can you absorb these costs and accept that we are going to pay you one month in the res or you're just going to have to have the money on you. So I think it's just important for people to understand that development finance, it, you can't have a no money down situation. It's either you're a good negotiator or you've got a lot of money around you. So you just need to bear that in mind. Um, also, also, just to add to that, I think that typically there are two ways that this could be funded. Equity first, i.e. the person who is the developer, for example, puts in all their money in and then the bank funds the rest of it. Mm-hmm or parry pursue which essentially means that the bank will say fund 50 percent and the equity will fund the rest mm-hmm. on each ipd which is interest payment day or each development drawdown date obviously if you're putting your equity first from a returns perspective of the developer that is that is riskier for you but it's obviously better for the bank because all your security is already in the project mm-hmm. If it's parry pursue, your returns will be better because you're putting in money as the bank is putting money. So and it's just like the time down. value of money, yeah. right? Like your money out is is always cheaper, I would say, than the money in the future. Um, so so most banks, and depending on where you are in terms of the size of the project, the kind of fund you are, the quality of the developer, i.e. if you're someone, say, like Galliard, for example, you can in some cases be able to negotiate 
where you can fund Paris Pursuit. Uh, whereas, you know, in terms of experience, if it's a less experienced developer, I mean, in some cases, even some banks will, won't do it. They will require you to put in the equity before they um, before they fund anything from going forward. Yeah, that's that's very helpful. I've got a friend that um, Galliard George. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that um, I was I was I think that there's a general point around contract management um, for IO, and it's just a lot of people. You know, this whole thing around paving arrears. This isn't a principle that everyone should just follow for development finance. I think it should follow and transcend everything you do as a development professional. So, Ayo, do you want to just briefly just explain the importance, even if it's not through development finance, but generally why it's important to make sure that um, your consultants, mm -hmm. contractors, are being paid in arrears? Yes. Um, okay. Um, so, so, if you follow one of the... The, the standard forms, you know, be it a JCT, be it an NEC uh, contract, you know, th th there are different payment methods. And if you've got an interim payment date, it'll be as I, as I, as I mentioned previously. So um, the works are assessed on a set date, uh, usually 28 days after the contract is signed on each month. So, 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 so the beauty there is you're only paying for the works that have been done. Um, it's, it's really important to do that. I know that when, when other you know, developers, smaller developers don't use that form and use maybe a bespoke contract, um, there's, a, there's a, a lot of pressure uh, from contractors to, to, to pay money up front, you know, pay me 20% um, up front. From, you know, I've heard of scary instances where it's even, even larger. And that's season two. Um, <laughs> that, that, that's season two. But, but the risk there is obvious, right? So um, you've paid in advance of the works actually being done. Uh, in the risk that the contractor becomes insolvent, um, you're, you're at risk. Um, you've got no recourse back, really. Um, so that, that that's that's one of the reasons why um, you, you may want to do that. And there's other other payment methods. You know, you could do it by by a milestone payment. You could do it by by um, um, uh, right at the end, so so turnkey effectively. All right. So we're just gonna um, we're just gonna try and get through some bullet questions, and I wanted to understand. It's very important to just quickly reiterate that contract management is not only specific to development finance. I'm just going to have to keep repeating that because a lot of people tend to get that wrong. Con good contract management happens throughout the whole development process, sales process and everything you do in life. Do not allow people to hold onto your money without them doing something that they haven't done. So this video man that's behind the camera, I paid him in advance, yeah? <laughs> but should I have done it? I shouldn't have. <laughs> but in reality, what I'm saying is in construction and development, that should not happen. But um, the next question I have today is, um, and it's mainly for Ray and Kazim, and this is, what happens when things go terribly wrong? And the things that go wrong is values are, so let's say at a particular moment in time, everyone knows the definition of valuation. When you get to the final GDV, it was assessed at a certain amount and it's gone down by 50%. And now, the developers in a, in a tricky situation or when costs go up or the build of insolvent in your view and very briefly because we've got one more question what happens so when things go wrong i mean and inevitably in a high-risk game things you know don't always go according to plan and that is why struck that's why you structure that's why you have lawyers draft and write a contract that's why you have first charge that's why you have second charge so frankly speaking, if things go wrong, whether costs go up and there's a your cost overrun or the well has dried up, 
one or two things will happen, um, or the values have, have plummeted, i.e. you're not being able to sell the development or the property for what you thought you would. Um, one or two things will happen, either you need to inject more cash equity, or you can walk away. And if you walk away, then the lender has a, uh, whether it's a half-constructed development on their hands, which they need to work out, and if it's a first charge, for example, the value, and this is where it's very important way you structure your deals because if you're highly levered, and what that means is if the capital stack that we talked about before, if most of the money is debt, it means that you have very little equity in, you become in bigger trouble because you, there's no headroom. There's no allowance for things, for things to go array. So what would happen is you potentially could lose your investment and the bank will then be in control. Obviously, and speaking for Ray, I'm sure he'll speak for himself, that's not really what banks are in the business of doing. It's not, you know, most lenders do not want that to happen because they don't, they're not necessarily loan to own people. They want the development to go well, they want to be able to be paid and they can walk away. Um, so in some cases, what would happen is that whether the site gets auctioned, um, if the developers walked away or you get refinanced. Uh, thanks for watching the uh, Property Development Book Club. Uh, push the like button and subscribe as well. I'm Adewale Ademalake, founder at A Lake, which specialises in property development and development management. We are sponsoring the first season of the Property Development Book Club podcast, which will be out on all platforms soon. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, hopefully we'll never get to that stage where you know, uh, you'd lose 50% of your value because um, this is why we do so much due diligence beforehand to make sure stuff like that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, but we are, we are living in crazy times at the moment where anything is possible. So in the event that does happen, we'll try and look for other avenues to try and exit. Um, if the sales aren't forthcoming, maybe you try and rent it out instead or maybe you try and do Airbnb or something else like that. Uh, but the onus will be on the developer, uh, borrower, to try and either A, inject more equity in, if the worst comes to the worst, um, then yeah, you'd have to call in receivers and get them involved and try and auction off this half-built site or whatever else it may be. Um, but fundamentally, um, yeah, we, we'll, the bank may even have to take a hit in the worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. It has happened before. and 2009, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And this is where, again, yeah, PGs, and again, very rarely does it happen because um, you shouldn't ever get to that stage, but like, you can call in their PGs and try and uh, personal guarantees, um, try and get equity from their other assets they may have. Well, it's, they're limited only to the 20% that's mentioned. Yeah, exactly. So they can cover the 20%, they're, they're, they're squat free. Oh, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, because <laughs> <still there. laughs> I mean, obviously yeah. you've got your, you, you would have eaten up your, your profits, your buffer, you know, the banks are only up, for example, you know, you lend up to 65, 70% anyway. So you'd have to lose quite a lot of value and also the profits and uh, and then obviously that 20% as well, for example. But, so it's a hell of a loss if you've uh, got to that stage and you call them on, try and call them there. Putting their buy to lets or whatever else it is, or trying to get them to sell their car to try and repay your loan. Well, talking about crazy times, obviously, we've just had the, the, the massive um, spike of inflation and increasing costs um, of materials um, and labour. Uh, and, and, and that's why it's really important uh, the relationship between uh, the fund and the monitoring surveyor, uh, but also more so the monitoring surveyor and the developer, and the developer being able to be open. Um, because what I found is, you know, w w when developers tend to try and hide and just try and deal with the situations themselves, 
um, it always leads to a problem. You know, if we find out and 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 and, and they're open and you know what. Banks are, um, as 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 Ray's just said, actually they, they want you to, to finish the development, right? They they want to get their return back, and and in most cases they will work with you and try and find ways um, um, to support you. So it, it, the key thing is, is communication. If I know early enough, we can have the conversation, uh, and it tends to um, it tends to to, to, to resolve itself. Yeah, so I think it's just it's just important to know. Firstly, things can't go wrong. And this is where um, it is important for a development person, developer like myself, and the person sitting over there, <laughs> to just bear in mind that we have to um, consider multiple exits. And multiple exits is, are you developing to sell those units to liquid, um, to obviously return your loan, or you may refinance it and make it into a larger buy-to-let type arrangement so you can rent it out. And I think you mentioned that. So it's just important that if you're working in a development, um, it's in our best practice within our professions to ensure that you can you have at least three or four exits. Um, another exit that some people do is they sell the homes to a housing association just to get themselves out of a hot and sticky situation. <laughs> so it's just important to note that exits are very, very important. And I think we've got a grenade. He's gonna. <laughs> I knew he was gonna do it. It's in his character. <laughs> we've got a grenade, um, and we're just gonna just have a, a very quick explorative conversation. And I briefly discussed it with him, and I, I think I know what his response is. He might change his mind. Who knows? But um, the question is, what is more important, finding deals or access to capital? What do you think? So this is a very interesting grenade, and the reason is today, and Ray mentioned it earlier, capital has never been wider, i.e. people are looking for returns. Over the pandemic, you know, there's a statistic in how wealth grew across the US and the rich got richer essentially because they had more capital. So in English, there's dry powder and what that means is there's a lot of money that people want to deploy, i.e. to give and to get returns back. And so I always think that it's important to have a combination of the right team beside you, because if you have the right team, i.e. you have access to the deals, then the money can get you your return. If you have money and you have no deals, you're just burning a hole in your pocket. And eventually, over time, especially in an inflatory, in, in, uh, during an inflatory environment that we're in right now, that value of your investment or value of cash is actually going down. So I think it's very important to have access to capital. And I think that if you have access to capital, you're more likely to be able to find good people and good deals. Whereas if you have great deals and you have no money, you can't do anything. That's my view. Hmm. I would disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I hope so. Um, <laughs> you can. Again, there are, if you're willing to pay and the deal stacks up, you can get 100% funding out of it. It is possible. You'd be paying for your nose for it. Um, but it is possible. So if the deal, if you if you have the right person that can structure a deal and make it work, um, or actually if you go out and do the old-fashioned way and try and get planning consent yourself, you know, you don't necessarily need too much money to get that going. Um, if, you know, if you're willing to have option agreements or whatever else, you know, you can get planning gain in a lot of banks now and London, lenders will take planning gain into consideration as equity. So that is, um, so I'd probably say having the right deals, I mean, because there's so much equity out there at the moment, the wall of capital, 
it's not too hard to get 100% funding these days. It is doable, but again, it's finding the right deal to make sure it all stacks up and it's still profit for everyone to make and keep everyone happy. Someone's got a question, but... No, because what, what Ray keeps saying, is you're right, it's about the right deal, but there's, very, there's several wrong deals out there. So you could have a deal and go out and get capital, but no one will give you the money for it because the deal just doesn't work. So there's, I think there's a balance between the both. I don't think it's one or the other. It's both. Yeah. A bit of both. Yeah. What do you think, Aya? Do you think money or the deals are more important? Well, how do I just stole my thunder? <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of both. I think finding the right deal, and, and you know, I say that because everyone's chasing, and actually, I don't think there's ever been a time when the common man, I say, people that aren't professionals, are, are aware of uh, the power of, of property, the power of development, um, and everybody um, is, is interested in getting involved. So it's harder to find these deals. So the right deal, I think, is key because, um, as we've said, there are many, many other uh, funding um, opportunities. So a bit of both, but I think the deal um, at this moment in time. Yeah, I thought grenading, but everyone seems to survive that grenade, obviously. But um, I think it's just important to note that um, the reason I thought I'll ask that question. What's your view first? I, I can't give my opinion because I'm the host. No, no, you have to give your opinion. Okay, my, my basic opinion is this. I feel that, um, you know, like, like developers are hunters, yeah? And we have to go out there like lions. We may or may not found the antelope, but we have to go out there. <laughs> no, no, but the reason What's I said that, well, so the answer in short is I think finding deals is, 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 I think that's more important because, you know, like speaking for myself and I would like to also speak for Hannah as well to a degree, because we are property development professionals and we manage schemes at scale, yeah, through all of the details, someone, if, if I was able to find an opportunity and, it, and I believe it made money, it is, there is a 99.9% .9 chance that it is going to make money. So me saying to an investor, I have this expertise, I found this opportunity and I've been doing this for 10 years. Um, I just need you to plug your money into this. You don't need to think about anything because mm -hmm. there's really thought about. I reckon there is, I think that that is more important being able to um, obviously find an opportunity and present it and do it that way. So that's why I feel that finding a deal is better. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, I do have an appreciation for capital because what we discussed earlier is if you have capital, what that does is you could always pay someone to go and find new deals mm -hmm. and they will go out there if they're incentivized financially. So I think there's a two, it depends on what angle you're looking at it. I'm an entrepreneur, ALIC, <laughs> it's a serious matter. And this whole option agreement that you, you discussed and everything, I think that um, maybe it's because of where I am at the moment, but again, it's just important to note that I think that 50-50, clearly. I mean, for sure, <laughs> like there's no question that the right deal is incredibly important. I think where I'm coming from, from a capital point of view, is the right capital. So in an option agreement that you talked about, like you don't even have to put any money. If you find a great deal and someone says to you, you know what, I'm gonna find it. However, I've seen situations where people have gone into, with structuring with someone, with a financier, and I, I kind of alluded to earlier, it's a loan to own. So the interest that they're charging you is so high that there is no chance you have just to repay back and they will then take the asset from you because they've structured it in a way to do that and so having access to capital not necessarily capital access to capital the right team around you that has the ability to 
work with the money that you have and the deals that you're finding is what will then give you that ultimate benefit. It's the access. Yeah, and I think that that raises a good point around predatory individuals, yeah? And people preying on the weak. So someone like myself or otherwise or another small developer, they can go out there with the best of intent to say, I'm going to be a developer, but there's someone out there that knows a bit more about how to structure things, to, to structure it to your failure for, so they can have the benefit. So it's just important to note that um, people with money um, are very intelligent people. And when you're doing these types of arrangements, I mean, if you don't have capital, you just need to be very mindful of the legal agreements. And, I'm, and, and I think, Kasim, you've, you've raised that. So I think as a final question, I just wanted to ask, in your view, what's the barriers for small developers um, getting into property development if they are professionals, but they don't have equity? What do you think the barriers and opportunities are? Very briefly, I'll ask you to ask the same and then we'll conclude this, this, this topic today. Yeah, I, th I think Ray hit the nail on the head, right? Like, the barrier is access, is access to the right deals, access to the right capital. I think that if you're, as you mentioned, an, an entrepreneur and you're hungry and you're able to go out, find and structure something, even just from a development point of view, nothing to do with the finance. Um, and you have, because there's so much capital out there and different ways to structure things where you don't even have to put much money down as a, as a, in, as an investment, you could either go for planning, you could spend, you know, a bit of money with, with the plan getting the, the planning together. And also that sort of value uplift will be the sweat equity. You can find people who, who can um, who, who can fund it of the hundred percent of the of the cost. So, for a small developer, I think that the one the, the the smart thing is surrounding yourself with the right people, with the right team, with the right advisors across different aspects of the whole property development um, cycle. And once you've done that, I think the the sky's the limit. Perfect. I really appreciate that. And this is what the property development book seeks to do: bring together um, professionals. And this is exactly what we do. But Ray, have you got an, an opinion on what the opportunities um, and the barriers are for a new entrance into property development? It's going to be getting your first deal away, to be fair, and getting the fun. If you haven't, if you can't finance it yourself, because um, it's always going to be a risk for someone, especially with it being your first deal. Um, so I think you're going to have to. It's, it's primarily trying to raise capital initially. I think 100% funding is okay if it's. If you've done it before and you have a good track record, but actually, if you haven't done it before, no one's going to give you 100% funding. So I think it's getting that first deal away and that first step is always going to be the hardest. So I suppose to try and surf and navigate that, maybe maybe doing refurbs to begin with or something like that first, rather than going for straight up new build or um, if you're like a contractor background, for example, uh, maybe again a smaller deal you're going to start off with rather than going in too big. Mm -hmm. um, or alternatively, if you're lack of experience, you can, money can make up for it. So if you're only for 50% geared, a bank might be more willing to take a chance on a newer developer if you're relatively lowly geared. So uh, that's probably my opinion. Okay. So today we've spoken about property development finance joined by Kazim from BBS, Ray from Paragon Development Finance and Ayo from Chorus, who's a monitoring surveyor. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, share and subscribe. Follow these guys. They are excellent professionals and we look forward to hearing from you in the next season.